Welcome to the Capitol Beach. My name is Derek Brockbank. I'm the executive director of Coastal States Organization and the host for the Capitol Beach. I'm really excited to be joined today by Laura Snyder, who is the deputy staff director for the House Natural Resources Committee. And we are going to be talking about a comprehensive piece of legislation called the Ocean-Based Climate Solutions Act. This is a bill that was introduced uh, recently and and reintroduced because it would have been introduced in the previous Congress that includes a whole bunch of different policies related to how oceans and coastlines can be part of the climate solution, both on uh, reducing pollution as well as adaptation. I'm really excited to be talking to Laura today. She was very instrumental in drafting this bill and is going to be very instrumental in moving it forward. Um, So uh, looking forward to a good conversation. But before we kick that off, I want to have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at Chloe at CoastalNewsToday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Laura, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Let's start by, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your committee? I mentioned it's the House Natural Resources Committee. Um, what is its jurisdiction? What does it do? Um, and, and you know, more specifically, what role does the Natural Resources Committee play on coastal and ocean issues? Yeah, the House Natural Resources Committee is chaired by um, Mr. Grijalva of Arizona, Uh, We have jurisdiction over all of the Department of the Interior, so um, many of our public lands, um, and we also have jurisdiction over part of the U.S. Forest Service and parts of NOAA. So we have a huge role to play on coastal and ocean issues. Um, Excellent. And then what about you? You're you're the Deputy Staff Director. I know I've worked with you for a few years now. So uh, what's your background? How did you get started on the committee? How long have you been working um, for the committee? Yeah, I'm the deputy staff director for the full committee, but I'm also the subcommittee staff director for the water, oceans, and wildlife um, subcommittee. So under our jurisdiction, we cover the NOAA portfolio, so fisheries, coastal zone management, um, uh, illegal seafood, and then we also cover the Fish and Wildlife Service portfolio, which is housed in uh, the Department of Interior. Prior to coming over to the committee, I uh, worked at Oceana. It's a nonprofit that focuses on ocean issues. I led the responsible fishing campaign there and also worked on illegal fishing, uh, human trafficking, seafood fraud within our seafood supply chain. And before that, I worked for a consulting firm where I worked on a wide range of issues, including environmental issues, human rights issues. And um, I also had the privilege of working for uh, Carol Browner, who was the former administrator of the EPA. Cool. So a a good DC background, mix of of federal, NGO, uh, consultancy. Excellent. And then do you come from, do you have a, a coastal background personally or a fishing background personally? Or are you from a coastal region? 
Um, no, I'm from Ohio. I have a political science degree. And, um, you know, I when I first came to D.C., like I said, I was working on a, a wide um, array of issues and um, started working on some ocean-related issues when I was working with Carol Browner. She was the U.S. representative to the Global Oceans Commission. And so I was staffing her in that capacity and uh, working with other countries to talk about how do we save the high seas, how do we save the oceans. We start, I started doing some work with um, Oceana and some other uh, ocean-related organizations and really just fell in love with ocean policy, you know, I think it's um, it's really interesting. There's not never a boring day. Um, you know, you have uh, issues relating to international trade, foreign relations, national security, food safety, the environment, sea level rise, coastal economies. The list goes on and on. And what I've really enjoyed about it is, it seems like every day you learn something new. There's certainly a ton of problems facing coastal communities and facing the oceans and our seafood supply chain and, you know, uh, and whatnot. So, um, you know, I think I, I picked a good field that there, I, I will never get bored and there's always um, problems to solve, problems to address, um, to, to hope, to help, you know, people and to help communities. So. Yeah, definitely. I, I feel that way too. And I, I work on a, a, you know, a subset of the issues that you do. I mean, we don't work too much on fisheries at all, but certainly the challenges facing our, our coasts with climate change are, um, and oceans are immense. Uh, I would be remiss. You mentioned uh, you're from Ohio, which is in fact a coastal state. Uh, Scudder Mackey would have my hide if I didn't point out that <laughs> Ohio is a coastal state according to the Coastal Zone Management Act. It's got a Great Lakes coastline. Um, it absolutely is. I So I'm actually from Southern um, Ohio, so I'm really close to the Kentucky border. So well, we won't hold that against you. Um, <laughs> uh, the ocean. So let's dig into the Ocean-Based Climate Solutions Act a little bit. That's that's why we're uh, why we're talking today. It is a fairly broad piece of legislation. It brings together a lot of different policies that impact the ocean and coast. Um, I do want to get into some detail. We like to we like to get a little wonky on the Capitol Beach. But before we dive into specifics, can you share an, sort of an overall perspective of what this bill would do if passed into law? What what is this bill? Why is it important? Yeah, so this bill is really um, important for a number of reasons. You know, um, since I've been in this position on the committee, and even before, I started reading different scientific literature that was talking about how, um, you know, usually when we talk about the ocean and as it relates to climate change, it's the victim, you know, that the ocean has all these um, issues relating to it. It's warming, ocean acidification, you have ocean plastic, ocean debris, et cetera. But um, there started to be a little bit of a shift of saying, you know what, the ocean actually can provide a lot of solutions to the climate crisis. And so there were a number of papers that were put out that, that actually I de uh, found that about 20% um, of the climate problem could be solved through ocean-centered solutions. So there were a number of these papers that are out there. And even um, back in when we were drafting, we started drafting this bill back in 2019, um, the the COP was in um, Madrid, the, you know, that when you talk about the Paris Agreement and, and the, the United Nations um, uh, climate conference was in Madrid. And um, there were a number of other countries that 
had started thinking about the oceans um, as part of the solution. So it, that COP was actually even dubbed the blue COP to start to integrate ocean climate solutions into countries' different um nationally determined contributions. And so I had the absolute privilege of traveling with Speaker Pelosi and a number of other chairs who uh, of committees that work on climate issues to Madrid um, uh, for, for the COP. And we saw a lot of presentations um, that were out there um, of how important nature-based solutions and ocean solutions are to the climate conversation. But we've never seen anything um, that actually takes that scientific research, those ideas, and put it into legislative text. And, I've, and honestly, for a long time, when I would meet with people, I'd say, I really want to do an ocean climate bill. You know, Chair Grijalva, yes, he's from Arizona, but he is a huge champion um, for, for battling the climate crisis, and we need all the solutions. And so I'd ask people if they had ideas, and we really did you know, I didn't get a whole lot from folks, in all honesty. So our team, and this was important to Chair Grijalva, our team started going through that scientific literature and said, okay, um, blue carbon. Blue carbon has the potential to sequester um, CO2. So what do we need to do to address this? Or we know that, um, you know, that drilling for more oil you know, it, increasing our dependence on oil is, prob is problematic. Um, so offshore drilling, uh, along with all the uh, environmental harm that it can cause, um, is problematic. But there's opportunity with offshore wind. So what are the policy solutions? Um, so we just kind of went through all the science that was out there. Um, it, even sim simple things of there's less greenhouse gas emissions associated with eating fish protein than cow or chicken or pig protein. So how do we, you know, incentivize more lower um, greenhouse gas emission related protein, like eating sustainable um, seafood, like, you know, just thinking through each one of these um, pieces that we are reading in the scientific literature and how do we translate that into uh, legislation. So that's how we started with it and all of, and then, um, uh, we formed working groups with ideas and reached out to the top scientists and policymakers to help craft this legislation. Um, there are definitely a number of pieces of bills that other members had introduced that had touched on some of these um, sections. So we worked with them to incorporate their ideas into the bill. And what we got was a bill that's, um, you know, 300 pages or so and, and worked from there. Excellent. Well, thank you for that great sort of overview in history stemming from, well, even before the, the blue cop in Madrid, but taking us through that. Um, and you touched on one of the first things that I wanted to ask you about, which is blue carbon. This is an issue I personally don't know as much as I probably should about, but I know there's a full section on this bill on blue carbon. Can you talk about what, what this bill would do um, to advance blue carbon? Yeah, so I'm going to even take a, a step back um, a little bit. So we all know how important trees are, right, for for climate change. Um, so uh, 
blue carbon is you know the the ocean ecosystems that are are like trees at at, at um, capturing the co2 so they are um, you know it can include mangroves marshes seagrasses and kelp forests all of those really do have a great ability um, to sequester carbon in in fact, blue carbon ecosystems can sequester carbon 10 times faster than forests, and they can store between three to five um, times more carbon than forests. So we, like already, we have blue carbon ecosystems to thank for offsetting much of the carbon we've already admitted into the atmosphere. Laura, sorry, yeah, just to jump in, I want to be, be clear because I think I understand this, um, but we're talking about... Uh, ecosystems within the water absorbing carbon, which is very different than the water or ocean itself absorbing carbon, which can lead to ocean acidification, correct? Exactly, exactly. But so part of the issue, though, is many of these coastal habitats have been damaged. And so um, when, you know, they are incredibly powerful like trees um, to to store the carbon and to sequester the carbon. So, but we don't know like all the damage that's been done to these ecosystems. So first we wanna do no harm, right? We don't want to continue to damage um, uh, and uh, destroy these ecosystems, number one. Number two, we need to know where they are. Like, I mean, we talk about this all the time about how much we've st studied, you know, other planets, the like other places. But there's there's a lot that we don't know about our ocean. So where do we have these ecosystems that are intact right now so we can can conserve them um, so we don't do any damage there? But then we also have a lot of opportunity to go and restore some of these coastal habitats. And so this is just such a win-win-win situation. So by restoring these blue carbon ecosystems, you are creating habitat for wildlife, which is great. You are, um, you know, creating the ability for these blue carbon ecosystems to sequester more carbon, which is great. A lot of times, um, you know, restoring these ecosystems also provide additional protections to those local communities. And then lastly, you're creating jobs. So this really is um, a very important piece of the climate puzzle, but it comes with so many other benefits. Cool. And what, so what does the, the section of the bill do? Does it provide funding, authorization? How does, how does this bill sort of advance that uh, offshore ecosystem blue carbon restoration? Yeah, so it establishes programs to research, map, and monitor blue carbon ecosystems. It also initiates programs to restore those degraded blue carbon ecosystems that I spoke about. And then it also establishes an interagency working group to coordinate blue carbon programming and research across the federal agencies. Cool, so a lot of different aspects. Okay. Well, let's pivot to another thing you brought up in that your sort of uh, overarching preamble here, which is uh, offshore energy. Um, I know the bill, uh, I believe the bill puts a full moratorium on offshore oil and gas extraction, and it also expands offshore energy. Um, if you want to touch on sort of either of those, but particularly the off sorry, offshore uh, wind energy, can you talk a little bit about um, sort of what it does for offshore wind and maybe other offshore renewables, tidal or, or wave energy? 
Yeah. So to clarify, it does put um, an offshore oil and gas moratorium on the Atlantic, Pacific, and Eastern Gulf. So it's not the entire. Uh, okay. So oh, it's, uh, sorry, say that again, Atlantic, Pacific, and Eastern Gulf, the Western Gulf, where there is currently, you know, fairly extensive oil and gas infrastructure that continues to produce. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, that's correct. And then it also, as, as um, I believe you, you mentioned, um, uh, that it, it does set up a goal for offshore um, wind production. Um, you know, we really do see that um, offshore wind um, is going to be so critical in meeting our climate goals. Um, so it sets up a goal um, for uh, the United States to seek to permit not less than 12.5 gigawatts of offshore wind energy production by 2025 and not less than 30 um, by 2030. Yes, one of the two 30 by 30s. We often, in the conservation community, often hear the 30 by 30 of of 30% land protection by 2030, but 30 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030 is another, another good 30 by 30. Um, so, uh, again, when it requires that, is it also providing, would the bill provide sort of incentives, funding authorization? How does it sort of advance that besides just setting this numeric goal? Yeah. So, I mean, it it does set up a goal, but it also sets up, um, uh, you know, a process because we do hear and, and we are very aware of some of the concerns that come along with offshore wind to fishing communities, um, you know, to wildlife. So um, making sure that we're doing it and citing it in the most responsible way possible um, and really minimizing the um, impacts to um, commercial fisheries and to um, to wildlife. So, but, but putting that goal um, on paper and, you know, encouraging the administration and Department of Interior to to get to that point. Excellent. And I, I know another thing that Bill does, I've been um, doing a podcast uh, with Senators Whitehouse and Cassidy to discuss their RISE Act, which ties um, lease fees from offshore wind production, amongst other things, but it ties lease fees from offshore wind production and make sure some of that funding is going back to coastal communities for coastal resilience. And I believe um, there's part of this bill that that does the same thing. Are there other ways in which you are sort of tying um, offshore wind production to coastal resilience and making sure some of the the communities that are seeing those wind turbines off their coasts are also being benefited um, benefited from those uh, wind turbines through coastal resilience or other sort of funding or support? Yeah, we haven't. Um done any process on that bill within um, our committee and are still uh, working through and thinking about how the different revenues tied toward to um, offshore wind um, should be used. Like one of the things that we've been discussing is um, that some of the surveys that are being conducted um, for fisheries to determine how much fish different commercial fisheries can catch that that their surveys um, are being impacted by some of the um, the location of the of the wind t- turbines. So, working to make sure that those impacts are mitigated and um, figuring out the proper way to do that. But in terms of the um, you know revenue sharing with the states, we we have not had any process um, on that concept 
in our committee. So it's too early for me to say. Um, cool. Well, I, you know, I like the way you framed this up as sort of reclaiming the victimhood of the ocean, right? You often think about ocean impacts, but ocean can be uh, uh, a solution here too. And we've talked about blue carbon, we talked about offshore wind. Um, if there's anything else uh, you'd like to bring up about how the ocean can sort of reclaim its its role as part of the solution. Um, but I'd also like to pivot to the many parts of this bill that address resilience and adaptation and making sure the ocean and coasts are um, able to, you know, change and withstand and, and adapt to uh, future climate impacts. Is there any sort of other solutions piece or can we pivot maybe to more the, the um, resilience side? Um, I would flag that, you know, there are a lot of uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions associated with the um, shipping uh, sector and industry. So we do have um, some provisions within the bill um, to to help address um, some of those. For example, um, it, because we do have um, fisheries under our jurisdiction, um, there is a loan program that's available at NOAA um, for uh, fishermen to uh, used to update their vessels. Well, we included, you know what, the loan program um, can also be used where, you know, it's low, low interest, can also be used uh, for fishermen if they decide to, uh, you know, update their vessel so they, they would have less um, greenhouse gas emissions, if they would need like less fuel use, et cetera. So there are pieces like that in the bill as well that I think um, – uh, are important are important and um, you know and I've talked a little bit about um, some of the uh, provisions uh, relating to fisheries already and you know the uh, helping to market sustainably caught fish um, so there there are a number of things throughout like like you said it's over uh, 300 pages long so there's there's a lot in there. I like that moving towards the more uh, more sustainable energy production, energy use for fishing. If if Ford can produce, uh, you know, the F one fifty as an electric vehicle, how far off are we from you know electric sh- shrimp boats? Um, hopefully, hopefully that'll catch up at some point. Yeah. Well, the, the other thing I do want to flag is, um, you know, you you mentioned thirty by thirty and um, the efforts to protect or conserve thirty percent of the oceans and water. Um, within the United States by 2030. One thing, um, you know, that we in on House Natural Resources Committee, um, we believe that, you know, if we're going to be holding ourselves to uh, a standard here in the United States, we need to do what we can um, to ensure that other countries are the same. So for example, um, we have a provision that says anytime the United States would enter into a trade agreement, with another country, that they have to have comparable um, goals and are meeting the goals to do 30 by 30. They also have to not have um, fishing. They, ca- they can't have any fishing subsidies. So fishing subsidies a lot of times are what allows um, fishermen to travel very far to the high seas, um, you know, and uh, to catch their fish, which it would not be profitable if the government wasn't subsidizing them. So by removing those subsidies, you're removing the incentive um, for overfishing, for traveling, you know, long distances to catch the fish and whatnot. So we really do try and be creative in how we're um, 
addressing all these issues and making sure that we're uh, using the power of the United States to try and influence others as well. Excellent. Cool. Well, let's talk a bit about some of the, the the infrastructure, resilience, and adaptation. You know, I think it's a sort of a small section in there, but one of the biggest impacts I think that's in there is um, the bill specifically authorizes ten billion dollars in grants for shovel-ready coastal restoration. It's sort of a simple um, uh, section, but you know that kind of money can have tremendous impact. So. Um, you know, why is this level of funding needed? Why do you think, why did you include that in here? What's, what's, what's that section all about? Yeah, that section is actually modeled off of, uh, the 2009 ARA funds. So, uh, when we did that, when Congress did the stimulus back in 2009, NOAA received a pot of money to do this type of work, to do living shorelines, restoration, marine debris removal, um, you know, building oyster beds, you name it. And it was hugely successful. So um, I think they only had about $160 million or so, but just in that short time, they got over $3 billion worth of proposals. So, and that was back in 2009. Um, And it demonstrated, you know, it created a ton of jobs. There was a a lot of economic benefit for the local communities. Um, And so when... um, when the pandemic hit and the, um, you know, it, the economy took the hit that it did, we were looking at programs that worked, and this is one of them. Um, but we also recognized that we needed to scale it up because there is such a great need um, across the country. And we wanted to write it in a way that no matter if you were on the Great Lakes, if you were in Hawaii, if you were in the insular areas, um, you name it, that if you needed coral restoration, you could, you know, you could apply. If you need living shorelines, if you need kelp restoration, if you need, um, you know, oyster beds, if, you know, you name it. whatever the local wetlands restoration, whatever the local community needs, that these funds would be able to meet it. And I think one of the most important aspects of this uh, this piece um, of the bill and, and what we are working to try and accomplish is we, we waive any of the cost-sharing requirements. Um, we don't ask for cost sharing for this. Um, we know that um, through Chairman Grijalva's uh, leadership on the Environmental Justice for All bill, when we um, had put his bill out for for public comment and for feedback from from local communities, we heard that those those matching waivers are uh, are an impediment to many communities that are under-resourced. And so, especially right now where we know um, states are lacking funding, you know, states can't use the federal dollars that they've gotten through any of the stimulus packages or whatnot to do do the matching requirements. Um, That we, and also just the fact that there are so many communities in need that are are under-resourced, that have not been able to uh, get many of the programs that are already available because of the matching requirements, that we knew that it was really important to get rid of that, to really make sure that we can, any, anyone who has a need um, for, for these types of programs can be eligible and that the matching requirement will not be an impediment 
to, to getting what the local community needs. So that's an incredibly important piece for, for, you know, for right now. There's still so many amazing programs that NOAA administers and Fish and Wildlife Service administers that do have matching requirements. But this right now is we want to get money out the door to the communities that need it. Yeah, I think that's an incredible program. And in Coastal States Organization, we polled our, our members, our states, um, this spring, as I know you were advancing this bill, and we got a quick turnaround of about uh, half the coastal states responded and had identified over $6 billion of, of projects that were you know ready to go or ready to go within the next 18 months, 18 to 24 months. Um, so you know, half the states came back with $6 billion in projects. We feel you know, $10 billion is could easily be spent over the course of, of two to five years um, for projects. And again, as you as you mentioned, some of these projects range from, you know, uh, major shore shoreline restoration projects that start approaching a billion dollars each, to you know just thousands of septic systems that need to be replaced um, as they face you know inundation with sea level rise. So you're really talking about a broad a broad concept of what restoration looks like, what resilience looks like. But there are projects that are are ready to go, and um, yeah, I don't I don't think there'd be any problem in in spending how. $10 billion over the next four or five years. So glad to see that in there. Um, also, uh, you know, a bunch of different sections you can bring up, but I, there's a the title or sorry, section nine uh, is coastal resilience and adaptation brings a lot of different funding authorities together, some policy changes. Um, anything you want to sort of talk about that uh, for how, how this bill is creating more of a resilient coastline or anything else sort of within the bill that's, that's really advancing resilience as a concept. Yeah. Um, so one thing, um, our, our subcommittee chairman, Mr. Huffman, um, brought this up at a hearing that we talked um, about uh, maybe a, a couple of months ago. He's up in Northern California, and the bull kelp there is not doing well at all. Um, we've had a, hearings on the situation on the corals in, in, in South Florida. You know, I think it's the, the Florida reef track is the third largest reef track in the world and it's dying. Um, you know, the disease has just been so awful to it. And I, it actually surprises me that it's not talked about more than what it is, but it just seems like ecosystem after ecosystem is taking a hit. Like, you know, this disease wasn't there for the corals. It's, you know, five, 10 years ago, um, now that they were dealing with bleaching events. But same with the bull kelp situation in, um, off of the coast of California, like it was, it was healthy a few years ago. So we're seeing, um, you know, it's just going to be example after an example of ecosystems that are um, going to be hurting. Um, so we need to be proactive about this and think about it. Um, you know, ahead of time, uh, you know, there's language in there uh, for programs for oyster reef or, uh, restoration across the country. Um, you know, we added an am amendment for restoration of kelp ecosystems. We've been working hard on the coral um, bill and making sure that that coastal communities with, you know, with corals have the resources they need to help save the corals. Because it, it, it's not just like, oh, these ecosystems are nice, they're beautiful. But, you know, the coral reef also protects Florida against storm surge 
and, and whatnot there, it's really important for, for life and safety as well. So, um, that being said, um, there are a number of programs in there that just recognizes the huge need for, um, protecting these areas, restoring, um, uh, uh, these different ecosystems, um, and hoping that we just, we don't have to w wait for them all to fail right away. The other piece, um, in section nine that I think is, is really important. Um, and we put a lot of thought into this, um, is the, the issue of relocation. So, um, this section, I believe it is, uh, section 905. Um, of the bill. We, and this is where, you know, we were reading scientific literature, reading different reports to help us get ideas of, of what to do. And I read uh, a report by the GAO about how communities um, are, some communities, specifically some um, Alaska Native communities um, and others that are being forced, not being, that are due to sea level rise are, are having to, to relocate. Um, and the GAO report talked about how there's no central um, agency within the federal government that is in charge of this. And as the seas rise, as you know, we're facing more and more issues related to to sea level rise. More communities and more people are going to have to think, like, do we need to relocate? Now we don't want this. We don't want any forced <laughs> relocation. It's all uh, voluntary. But what this section does is is directs the um, uh, Council on Environmental Quality, which is housed within the White House, to start uh, organizing the different federal agencies and coming up with plans and coming up with pilot programs as to how we are going to have to address this in the future. So again, this is us trying to. Um, at least get the infrastructure, the the different programs, the right people talking, so it is more thought about in advance rather than um, when communities are faced with uh, difficult decisions. So um, I think that that is also an important um, provision, and we've just seen more and more stories of communities having to really think about their next steps. Yeah, that's that's so important and something that I think we need to be uh, moving fast on is figuring out how to make these opportunities available, right? We're not forcing relocation. What forces relocation is storms and, and sea level rise, right? So you can either, you, there, there are some communities that are just going to either move, you know, ahead of time and planned and thought in a thoughtful way or are just going to have to evacuate and won't have homes to come back to. So I think it's great that you guys are thinking about how to how to move that forward in a, a conscientious and um, thoughtful and, and hopefully equitable manner too. Um, so last thing, I just want to make a, one more plug for one section of the bill. This is section five it, uh, is the Coastal Zone Management Act amendments. There are a series of amendments to the Coastal Zone Management Act, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary next year. Um, and it effectively uh, reauthorizes Coastal Zone Management Act, which we're, um, we at Coastal States is a, a top priority for us. So really glad to see see that um, CZMA has been just a really effective bill for, well, 49 years now, but it's it's certainly due for some for some updates and refreshes. Um, so glad to see you including that in there. Uh, 
let's pivot to, we've got, you know, we talked about a bunch of different sections. There are a bunch we didn't talk about. I will certainly include the link to the section by section in the show notes. So if you're, if you're interested in seeing, you know, the nitty gritty, uh, please check it out. But I want to pivot to sort of how this moves, right? This is a bit of a, um, you know, it's, it's a big bill, uh, it may not be a, you know, 3000 page infrastructure bill, but it's still a big bill includes a lot of different things. How do you see this bill moving forward? How do you see it becoming law? What's, what's the next step? Uh, so here's the exciting thing. Um, as you mentioned, we introduced it, this bill in the last Congress and we had to make some changes to it. This Congress, um, part of it is we uh, had some new ideas. We're able to work some through, through um, some things, but the other is because some of the sections from last year have been signed into law, or the Biden administration has already taken action um, on uh, provisions that we had in in the previous bill. So we really do see this as a blueprint, um, and that we are, you know, looking at these different sections and as must pass. Uh, uh, bills are moving through the process. Um, we are seeing which sections could be a good fit for those and making our case. I think we have a strong case that you know many of these provisions within the ocean-based climate solutions bill just make a lot of sense. Um, and so as um, things move, we are working to incorporate them um, into the appropriate, in appropriate places. But we did um, already mark up the bill out of committee, so it's passed out of committee, um, and we will continue uh, to pursue it as a whole, but also taking different sections that make sense and, and pushing um, them in lar larger packages. So sort of a both and strategy, you know, you've, you've moved the bill itself. Obviously, if you could, you know, get it to the floor, that'd be great. But really also finding other vehicles where it might make sense to add certain titles or sections. A absolutely. But even... I think the fact that we introduced the Ocean-Based Climate Solutions Bill, before we did that, you would read um, climate bills that never said anything about the oceans. And when the oceans are potentially as much as 20% of the solution, it's an issue that wasn't talked about before. So even I think by introducing this bill, the work that we've done, the the folks that have embraced this bill and are you know moving it forward, we're seeing the ocean incorporated into the climate conversation more. Like in our uh, 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 nationally determined contributions in our report for when we entered back into the Paris Agreement. Blue carbon was mentioned. Ocean climate solutions was was mentioned in what the United States was putting forward. So, um, you know, we are hearing these uh, uh, concepts come out at, from the highest levels, uh, you know, in, within the administration and elsewhere. So, um, I think that it has been important on a number of fronts of just even recognizing, you know, like. I mean, you said you didn't know much about blue carbon. Everybody knows about trees, though. Like, but how? I mean, the, these ecosystems are even more powerful, and so they deserve. We need to know about them. We need to know how to to uh, conserve those that we have, and what a good opportunity to go and restore them and get all these added benefits. Yeah, I like that. You know, you often hear sometimes bills are messaging bills that don't really have intention of passing. Um, but you're sort of trying to get, you know, get the, make, 
use legislation as a sort of a platform to talk about an issue. And it sounds like this bill is, is really trying to do a little bit of both, both using it, uh, using the platform of, of Congress and the Natural Resources Committee to talk about some of these super essential issues, but also moving forward with sections of the bill that, that hopefully can, you know, can pass either, you know, as part of, uh, uh, other vehicles or, um, or maybe potentially even on their own. So it's sort of a messaging bill and an, uh, actual, you know, legislation to move forward. So, um, excellent. Uh, anything else you wanted to share about the bill, any sort of closing argument, final wrap up? Um, n- no, my, my last point is I know we sometimes, uh, get questions about why should people who don't live in the coast care about this bill. But this bill and the oceans are important to all of us who care about the impacts of of climate change. And so that's why you see Chairman Grijalva of Arizona leading this bill. Um, I think it's something that all of us um, should should care about. Um, And, um, you know, we appreciate you taking the opportunity to chat with us about it. Yeah, excellent. Uh, Chairman Grijalva from Arizona and staffed by someone from Southern Ohio and moving an ocean bill. That's that's excellent. That's what we like to hear. Um, so my, my actual final question is one I ask all my guests, um, which is hopefully sort of a personal fun one. Uh, you know, we do a lot of work in Congress or in the administration, and it's, we don't get to spend a lot of time on the coast or the beach. Um, but I think that often helps rejuvenate us and inspire us. So what is your favorite beach or coastal area? Where do you, where do you go to get... Uh, refreshed and and excited about working on ocean and coastal issues. Yeah. So my favorite beach is Sunset Beach, North Carolina. My family and um, five or six other family um, families have grown up going to the beach every year since I was not even one year old. So um, it's a great tradition that my family has. And, you know, there's 30, 40, 50 of us sometimes that rent different beach houses. Um, And it's just uh, a really special and beautiful place. Excellent. Well, um, thank you for sharing and thank you for joining us today and and telling us about this really, uh, you know, incredible and impressive bill. Um, We look forward to uh, seeing it move forward and either as a whole or in parts. So thank you so much. Thank you.